Well, good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. A beautiful Sunday morning and appreciate the music team and getting up there every week and uh, leading us in worship. And just FYI, um, if you're musically inclined or can sing, uh, I've been told that uh, this is not an area of ministry for me, but if, if you can, uh, you know, we're always looking for people to fill in there. Uh, if you're inter- interested in tech type of stuff, like helping with the PowerPoint or doing a soundboard, we'll actually train you for that. We just don't throw people in there. We train you. And anytime that Hagen and Caleb are back there, um, like, you always be willing to turn around and look at them because they're probably the funnest things to watch. <laughs> like that <clears throat> that uh, sermon bump that we do there look like two river dance people back there. It's pretty funny. Anyways, we got a lot to cover, so we're going to jump right into it this morning. And so I, I, I have to ask a favor of you. I've got a lot of information. In fact, we could probably split this message into four weeks of information. There is a lot in Colossians 1, 13 through 23. And go ahead and turn there, because that's where we're going to be. Uh, it's page 1178. And uh, so I, my fear is that I'm going to go through this material, and I've got to do it fairly quickly, and you're going to become glassy-eyed. And so I need you to really focus in. I need you, you know, if someone's, maybe we should all sit more closely to each other. That way we, you know, keep on hitting each other if we hear somebody snoring. But we need to, we need to lock this down this morning. Because there's some good stuff about Jesus Christ that we need to get a handle on, okay? So everybody has an opinion about Jesus Christ. So hit that next slide there for me. So we, the Gnostics of Paul's day, and really even today, there are Gnostics that are around today. You don't see a whole bunch of them necessarily, but if you go up on, uh, on the internet, you'll find some of their writings. And there's a real big movement in the second century uh, and on for a little while, uh, so the hundreds, two hundreds. Um, and so they see Jesus um, as an enlightened teacher. Some believe that he was uh, a spirit who appeared to have a body. He didn't actually have a physical body. Others believe that he had a physical body and that a divine spirit possessed him. So there wasn't this unified God and man like Jesus Christ is. And there's a lot of other things about the Gnostics, and we'll kind of talk a little bit about it this morning uh, as we go along. And then we have uh, the Muslims. They believe that Jesus was a prophet from Allah, and, um, but that he failed. And so that's why Muhammad had to come. Muslim, uh, Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses, um, he's a man, but through obedience he became God. And actually we can as well. Uh, well, men can. Women, you'll just be with the men uh, who are gods. Um, and then you'll get your own world, is what the Mormons teach. You'll get your own world, and then you'll be able to have the spirits that will go to that world to find obedience and then they can become gods. Anyways, so that's Mormons, Jehovah's Catholics. They say that Jesus is God, but they also say well, Mary, his mother, uh, you know, can, will advise him and influence him and direct him. But then that kind of makes it seem like, well, you know, who is the God there? And in our culture, uh, just generally speaking, some see Jesus as a, as a teacher of good morals. Some uh, think he's not really real but that he's being used, you know, he's a story um, to help us with good morals. Some are just simply apathetic. <laughs> they don't really care about some guy who lived 2,000 years ago, and even if he is God, or even if he did die, even if he did rise from the dead, they don't really care about Jesus Christ. 
And so the question before us this morning is, who do you say he is? Because what you do with Jesus, who you say Jesus is, has massive impact in your life. In fact, look at Colossians 1, 13-14. says, For he, God, speaking of there, rescued us, believers in Jesus, from the domain of darkness. So God has rescued us, saved us from being under the control of sin and the consequences of sin, and transferred us us to the kingdom of his beloved son, talking about Jesus, in whom we have redemption, freedom from sin's control, and forgiveness of sin. And so, if Jesus is who he says he is, then he's the one through whom we have salvation. And so it's a, it's a massive, uh, massively important thing to understand that who Jesus is and for you to determine whether he truly is God or not. And again, I can only if Jesus is God. So Paul's telling us in these verses that we're going to look at today, 14 through 23, that, and again, we're talking about the um, image of the invisible. And so we see in Jesus that he is God through the creation of the universe or the world, through creating the church, and the one who creates peace with God. So let's see what he says. We're going to take chunks of verses at a time and then break them apart. So the first one is this, because again, this could be one message in itself. So he, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of, or the supreme over all creation. And so, first of all, we need to understand that Jesus is God, and as God, he's the image of the invisible. We get our Greek word icon, uh, or the Greek word's icon, we get our word icon, spelled a little bit different, from that. It just means likeness or reflection, but it's, it's more than, than that. It's not, it's not just being like, it's more than that. It's actually being who he is. Now, just some theology here for you. So we have the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, right? One God seen in three persons, and yet still one. In the Old Testament, we, we see a lot of God, God the Father, we see God the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit moving, but we don't see a whole lot of God the Son. Now, there are things called theophanies or Christophanies, and what those are is, you'll see as you're reading through Scripture, there'll be times, Abraham, uh, it happened to Abraham, it happened to uh, Joshua, and what they'll do is, there'll be a person who comes to them, and they'll respond to that person as if that person was God. They would worship that person. They would provide sacrifices for that person. And so we look at that and we say that we believe that that's a pre-incarnate, pre-in-the-flesh um, appearance of God the Son. We don't talk about Jesus in the Old Testament because Jesus hadn't, God the Son had not put on flesh yet. That happens in the New Testament. So in the New Testament, we see God the Father at work. Jesus talks about him a lot. We see God the Son literally at work because he's in flesh now. He is human and we see God the Holy Spirit at work. So Jesus said this about himself. Jesus said to him, now he's talking to Philip, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And so Jesus is saying, hey, I'm, I am God. I just happen to be in the flesh. I'm one with God. And then he goes on, uh, Hebrews says this about Jesus. 
And he, Jesus, is the radiance or the, the brightness of God's glory and the exact representation. Now, there's no other way of saying he is God than in the English than that. He is the exact representation or likeness of God's nature and upholds all things, creation, the church, salvation, by the word of his power. And so Jesus shows us in the flesh who God is, what he's like, how he operates, how he works. And as God then, he reigns over all creation. And so Paul uses this word firstborn. Now this, this gets confusing for people because firstborn can mean one of two things in the Greek. It could be the one firstborn, you know, chronologically speaking. So Sarah is our firstborn. Or it could be the first in authority, the one who is over all. All right. Now, in context, as we read through this, and actually as we all go through uh, verse 23, we're going to see that in context, this is talking about that Jesus is supreme in authority. Okay, It's not that he was the first one created, but that he is supreme in authority. Now, the apostle uh, John talks about this in John 1. He says, in the beginning... Now, again... Words are so key as we're reading through Scripture. We're going to see this elsewhere, too. Even small words, one and two letter words, are very important. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, the Word, Jesus, we find out that the Word is Jesus in verse 14, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, he couldn't create himself. Now, the word was there is in the imperfect tense, meaning that the word, or God the Son, has no beginning and no end. He has always existed. And so Jesus, as God then, God the Son, brought in the world. He, was, he has always existed because he is God. So then Paul goes on to say that as God, he reigns over all creation because he created it. He owns it. This is his. We are his. So we'll continue reading in verse 16. This is it. Oh, there it is. For by him, (laughs) come on, it's there. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in the heavens, speaking of outer space and even into the spiritual realm, potentially, and on earth, visible, the things we physically see, and invisible, the metaphysical, the the spiritual side of life, spirit beings, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, so he's the source, and for him. It's his possession, and it's for his purposes, okay? He, Jesus again, is before all things, and in him All things hold together. In other words, he makes sure that all things continue to exist. And so he's created. That word means to bring something into existence. It's it's an aorist tense, which means it's a historical, completed, finished act of creation. Now this has a lot of ramifications in our world today because of evolution and people believing Martians seeded our planet and again, we joke about it, but people truly believe that Martians seeded our planet. In fact, I just heard an interview this week with a guy who was an army commando, and 
they had a bunch of different topics, and he was saying that it seems like evolution is really kind of dumb, but, you know, Martians seeding, you know, they put a gun in that guy's hands. But anyways, and so God, Jesus, in that sense, again, as God the Son, created everything. Everything that's discovered, everything that is still yet to be discovered, whether it's in space or on earth, they're still discovering planets. Jesus made those. They're still discovering things in the ocean. Jesus made those. They're not continuing to evolve. They are, they are there. They have been there. He's created everything that's physical, every physical being, every spiritual being. He's created every physical and spiritual power, the, the power structure, those that are in control, whether it's on the earth or uh, in the spirit world. He's, he has a chain of command already orchestrated, and that was all part of his plan. And so since he created those, then he also controls those ultimately, right? And so whether it's physical, nations, leaders, you read through Scripture, it says that he raises up leaders and he takes down leaders. He raises up nations and he takes down nations. And he does that within the spirit world as well. It says that it's by him, which literally means to be in him. Uh, I've never heard of this commentary before, but this guy, John Eady, put it together really well. He says, uh, he was not as a builder working out the plans of an architect, but the design is his own concept, and the execution is his own unaided enterprise. The Gnostics believe that God, a lesser God, by the way, created this world out of himself. And because it was a lesser God, what he created was lesser and was actually evil, um, and that it also was partly God because it came out of himself. But here, Paul tells us, no, no, he was created through him and for him. Now, this is the second time the word created was used. First time it was era, so it it was a completed, done deal. This time, it's the perfect tense, which means, yes, it happened in the past, but it still continues today. It's still his creation. It hasn't changed. And the more we find out about science... And the more the evolutionists want to say, no, it's evolution, the more science tells us, no, God created this world. And it's amazing to me, you know, you can tell a lie so long and people start believing it. People believe, a lot of Christians even believe that there's some sense of evolution at work. But what we're finding out here is, no, Jesus, God the Son, created the world. And it was a done deal. And it happened in six literal days. And it was complete when it was done. It wasn't continuing to evolve. You know, just when you think about evolution real quickly, because I won't get into the whole thing, because we're not, we're not doing a comparison here, but think about one kind of species turning into another kind of species. Now, you, we don't know, because I haven't looked it up, but I'm, I'm guessing that there are millions and millions and millions, if not billions, of cells that are all different in this species. You know, you got the, the bone cells, you got the blood cells, and you got the feather cells, and you, got, you know, you got whatever. For that all to happen, for all those different kinds of cells to transform or evolve into all kinds of different kinds of cells into a different species, that's mathematically impossible. Listen, 
I get it that people want evolution to be true, but we have to believe what we see with our own eyes. It doesn't make any sense. And the more things are discovered, the more we find out that there's got to be a designer. We believe that designer is the God of the Bible. And so it was created through him and for him. He didn't use tools. He spoke. He created the materials that he needed to create. And then he put those materials together. And it was created for him. Just like if you or I build something, it's ours. We decide to be done with it. Well, Kim decides what I build, but that's besides the point. He created it for himself, for his purposes. You and I have been created for him, for his glory, to, to be representations or representatives of him, to be used for his purposes, not for our purposes. Well, how could Jesus have created all things? Well, because God, as God, he is before all things. Let's go to the next one. So Jesus is before all created things. It doesn't say Jesus was before all created things. It says Jesus is. Is is a present tense. In other words, he's continually existed. Before creation ever started, God existed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in Trinity, perfect relationship, God existed. And it was before. So, as God the Son, since He's always existed, He existed before creation. Kind of a logical point that Paul is making. So not only did Jesus, as God, create all things, but He also continues to keep them existing today. I'm telling you, I get it. There's a whole lot of stuff here. Hang with me. Okay, are you with me? So He holds all things together. It means That word means to, to come to be in a condition of coherence, to continue, to endure, to stand together. There's a bunch of different ways of saying it. It's a perfect tense. In other words, Jesus continually holds all of this together. And I threw up here an example. He, you know, if you study this out, the tilt of our earth is tilted in such a way that if we tilted one in one you know, minute degree in the wrong direction, we would burn because of the sun. Or if it tilted the other way, we would freeze because we're not hitting just right with the sun. And it's spinning at such a speed, perfectly, that if it stopped spinning so fast, we would float away. If it spun a little bit faster, we'd be crushed by gravity. Again, that sounds like design. And Jesus is the one who continues to keep that going. Even though it seems, and as they look at it, the, the universe is kind of spreading, Jesus is keeping it all. He's got it all in control. And again, this has ramifications for everything in our world today. I can't get into all of the things that this can impact. So Jesus is the one who keeps that and all the laws of nature that we have he keeps it all going. He's making sure everything is happening. And it's interesting, I was reading a book, I keep forgetting the name of it, but, um, but one of the things that the guy said in there was that Jesus spoke and the word, and the world was created. And then he keeps things going by the word uh, of his power, however, however it's phrased. But his idea, he says, and if Jesus ever stopped talking, you know, I'm like, oh, 
that's a concept. So Jesus is continually, continually talking in that sense. He's, it's controlled by his, by his words, which is really kind of an awesome thing. So Paul moves then from being the creator of the universe to now being the creator of the church. And so here's what he says. He, again, talking about Jesus, so we make sure we're talking about who we're talking about, is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning. There's that word again. The firstborn from the dead. Why? So that he himself, he alone, nobody else, will come to have first place in everything. So he's the one who created the church. He is the head of the church. And there's that he is again. That's the present tense. He is and will always be the head of the church. There is nobody who is higher than Jesus when it comes to the church. Nobody is the head of the church. I am not the head of the church. I'm, I'm called a, a, an under-shepherd of Jesus who is the great shepherd, but I am not the head of the church. We don't do church the way I want it. We do church the way God says to have it from Scripture. And so with that, again, all the ramifications... There's nobody on this earth who is speaking and changing what the Bible says for God. And you can decide who I'm talking about there. So he's the head. That's the part of the body that controls what the body does. It's the brains. Jesus is the brains. Jesus tells us in God's word how we're supposed to do the church. Now, he doesn't give us a whole lot of specifics, which means we have freedom in Christ to kind of operate as God wants us to. That's why, that's why the way the church is operated can, can operate in a bunch of different cultures. Because there's not a whole bunch of rules and regulations. There's some leadership stuff, and there's exactly what we need to be teaching, and all that kind of stuff. And so, he's the head of the body. The body is this unified group of people. In this case, those who are the ecclesia. Those who have been called out from the world to be in relationship with God through faith in Christ. So Jesus is our head. He's the one who directs us through his word on how we're supposed to do life and how we're supposed to be the church and respond to this world. He says he is the head of the church because he is the beginning of it. Beginning just means he started the process. How did he start the process? By being the firstborn from the dead. Now here again, there's that word firstborn. He's not saying that he was the first person to ever rise from the dead because we know that there's people in the Bible before Lazarus for one, who was raised from the dead. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that Jesus is the greatest human to ever have been raised from the dead. Why? Because as God, his resurrection meant that we too would then be resurrected. We are in Christ. What happened to Jesus happens to us. We who have placed our faith in Christ. And his uh, well, Paul talks about this. I'm going to get ahead of myself. So Paul talks about this in uh, 1 Corinthians 15. It says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits, in other words, first of more to come, of those who are asleep, talking about believers who have died. And then jumping down to verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that, those who are in Christ, those who have placed their faith in Christ at his coming. And so it's the rapture, when he comes and takes us up, Christ has already been raised from the dead. Now, here's the cool thing. His resurrection showed his power as God. John 10, he says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, 
so that I may take it up again. Which is pretty cool. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. And he took it up. God the Father was part of his resurrection. God the Holy Spirit was part of his resurrection. And God the Son, he himself, was part of his resurrection. So he is God. And obviously, all of this was so he would have first place in everything. This word, um, first place, is, has this idea of holding the primary place of power and status. Now again, this goes against the, the Gnostics. The Gnostics said that there are a bunch of different spirit beings between man and God. And Jesus was just one of them. And, and what we're being told here is, no, it's, it's not that Jesus is one of many. Jesus is the only one. Why? Because he's God. <laughs> There's no mediator between God and man but Jesus Christ, the God-man. So Paul continues to give reasons why Jesus is the only one needed for spiritual understanding. Again, the Gnostics, what they're, trying to, what they're saying is Gnostic gnosis means knowledge. And what they're saying is there's some deeper knowledge. There's, there's some um, more spiritual understanding that we need to grab. And yeah, Jesus is probably part of that. He's one of the enlightened teachers. But there's other enlightened teachers that we need to go find, see who they are. And what they do is they start taking like teachings and rituals from other uh, religions, and then they start putting their own definition to them. Like one of the things that the Gnostics are, I was just reading uh, one essay, that they're really into the Eucharist and the Mass of the Catholic Church. But as you start reading why they're into it, it's not even what the Catholics teach on it. They, where the, the Catholics believe as they're taking communion that they're eating the flesh and, and blood of Jesus, and, they, and then in that they find some of their salvation. But the Gnostics say, well, no, we're all spirit beings, and we need to connect in with the spirit. We need to connect in with the light, which is interesting if we go back to verse um, 12, which we won't do, but Jesus talks about the light, or Paul talks about the light. The, the Gnostics are always wanting to be a part of the light. And, and so what they say is if you, when you take communion, you become one with God. You know, again, because God is a great spirit, and they want to become one with that. And, and again, it's, it's this knowledge, and they're constantly looking for knowledge and pulling in more and more things. And so Paul's saying, listen, if you want spiritual understanding, you need to know Jesus. If you want to know God, who to the Gnostics is unknowable, if you want to know God, then that comes through Jesus Christ. And so look what he says Again, for it was the fathers. Now, this is where I need you guys to really hang in there with me, okay? All right, okay, you guys ready? Yeah. Eyes are open. Hey, thank you, Caleb. Caleb's ready to go. For it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness, all of who God is, to dwell in Jesus. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile or make right. So there's reconcile. It's going to show up again. Make right all things to himself, having made peace. In other words, this idea of no conflict through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, and this is where it gets dicey and we got to explain, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So he's going to make peace through his blood with all things. And although you, talking to those who have trusted in Jesus, so you and me, were formerly alienated or estranged and hostile in mind, our thinking was contrary to God's, 
engage in evil deeds, because deeds, if your thinking is wrong, your actions are wrong. Yet he has now reconciled you or made you right with God in his fleshly body through death. Why? In order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue, so if indeed you continue in a faith firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. In other words, God's attributes and power can be seen in creation, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Now, this is where it gets a little dicey, okay? So first of all, um, this is pretty clear. So all of who God is dwells in Jesus, right? Because he is God, the fullness and again, the pleroma, this is something that the Gnostics were searching for. They wanted this fullness of God. They wanted to become God, right? And so they're looking for this fullness. And so, um, and all they had, they each had a little bit of it, but they wanted more of it and all of it. And Paul's saying, listen, no, Jesus has it all. Jesus is the fullness. He is the sum total. It has this idea of abundance with the em- emphasis on completeness. It's the same word as filled, by the way, or same root word as filled back in verse 9 that we talked about, being filled with the knowledge of God. And he says there's fullness dwelled. This means to have permanent residence. This is the present tense. This means that continually, day in, day out, no matter what the circumstances and what was going on, Jesus always had God dwelling in him. Why? Because he is God. One commentator said it's the complete embodiment of God dwells permanently in Christ. Now this debunks Gnosticism. Because again, they thought that he was either a spirit who appeared as a man, or that he was a man who had a divine spirit possessing him. But Jesus isn't any of that. Jesus is God. And God was glad to have Jesus as God, if you want to put it that way. And then he says that he reconciles all things on earth and heaven to God. Now this is where there's a teaching out there called universalism. You would have heard of it. And it just basically means that everybody eventually gets to go to heaven. Because Jesus reconciled everybody in heaven and on earth. Everybody. Humans, spirit beings, everybody gets to go to heaven. But is that what he's talking about here? No. No. So this is not teaching universalism. Uh, the Bible elsewhere says that that's not the case, that those who place their faith in Christ go to heaven. Those who don't place their faith in Christ will sadly spend eternity in hell for rejecting Jesus. So it's not teaching um, universalism. The word reconcile does mean to reestablish a proper relationship, in this case with God. Oftentimes it means a friendly relationship. But at times, it just means to reestablish a correct relationship. Maybe is another way to put it. And so he says there's going to be this time where all people will have a correct relationship with God, and then, then there will be peace. Now, peace very basically means free of conflict. And so whenever this reconciliation happens, there is going to be peace. There's not going to be any more conflict in this world. And it's all things. All things in heaven and all things on earth. So this seems to be something more than just humans. This seems to be 
worldwide or universe-wide. This seems to be something bigger. So what is he saying here? You have two options. The first one is that he reconciles all those who he can reconcile. Which, in other words, he'll reconcile all those who place their faith in Christ. And I'm saying no to that, personally. You can, this is just me now. Uh, I'm saying no to that because he, he's going to talk about that in 21 through 23 that we've already read. So the second option is that he's taking reconciliation and it's in this broader sense of just making things right between people and God. And there's going to be peace, which is not going to be conflict. So if you look in Philippians, and now we're going to go to the Bible to help understand the Bible, which is wise to do. Paul says this, For this reason also, talking about Jesus' death, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Now he's not yelling. He's saying, he's pulling from Isaiah 45, which is an end times prophecy. So every knee will bow, and of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And so we understand that at the end of time, when it's all said and done, before we go into the eternal state, there are going to be believers who willingly bow before Christ and say, you are our Lord and Savior. Why? Because we did it on earth. But there's going to be those who will bow. They will be forced to bow because they'll realize, oh my word, we were wrong. When we were on earth, we were wrong. And, and God is going to sadly, because they rejected him, reconcile their relationship. He's gonna, the dues is going to be paid, if you want to put it that. So what some scholars call, a, he's going to be reconciled to judgment. God is, right now, they're in conflict with God. But he's going to make that relationship right by judging them. By unrepentant humans, by unrepentant demons, Satan will all be thrown into what Scripture tells us, the lake of fire. And in doing that, there will be peace. Because his enemies will be judged. And the rest will be reconciled to salvation, what we generally speak of. Angels who have already been obedient and repentant humans will receive salvation. So, again, whatever the case, whatever he's talking about there, Paul then goes on and talks about this reconciliation that we're more used to, this reconciliation of, of salvation. And so we have a need of salvation. He says you're alienated. Prior to coming to Christ, people are alienated. They're estranged. They're sinners. Um, they're, God says in Romans 5, they're enemies of God. And so we're alienated. Prior to faith in Christ, we're alienated from God. Everyone is. He says you're hostile in mind. In other words, our thinking is contrary to God's. How we think about life, how we think we should live life, is contrary to God. And then we're engaged in evil deeds. Again, what we think is how we live. That's why God wants to transform the way we think so that we live the way He wants us to. And that's the battle as a Christian, right? We're constantly having to renew or having God renew our minds. And so that's our position. That's our situation. And what Paul is telling us is that Jesus is the one who died in our place. The consequences for our sin at the end is that God judges us. So we talked about it. And so what he's saying is that Jesus died in our place. Jesus, 100% God, 
100% man. This is why it's so important to understand who Jesus is. Because nobody can save us except God. And God did. God the Son, Jesus. So he took on flesh. He became human, unified, not just possessed body. He was unified. And he did that to make us holy, to, to, give, to make us so we can live moral lives, that we can be set apart for his purposes, that we can worship him and be dedicated to him, that we would be blameless, that in other words, we would have no fault. As God looks at us, there'd be no defect. Why? Because he's seeing us through Christ, that we would be beyond reproach. We'd be free from accusation. Nobody could accuse us. Nobody could stand in front of God and say, oh, you can't let Harold in because he's a sinner. No, 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 no. Harold is in Christ. He placed his faith in Christ. Jesus died for him. As a man, Jesus died. A perfect man. And as God, he can have his sins forgiven. And so here's salvation's impact on our daily life. This reconciliation then produces a life lived God's way. That's how, he, that's how he finishes things off. He says, if indeed you continue. What's he mean by that? What he means by that is that if we continue, in other words, if we hold fast to this salvation that we have, it's going to change the way we live. Our lives will be changed. We'll see the power of Christ. Just like we talked about the first week. We'll see the power of Christ at work in our lives. He says, be firmly established. That means secure or permanent. It's a perfect tense. So it's an action that's completed in the past at our point of salvation that continues on in our life each and every day. We are firmly established. Listen, the faith that it takes to place our faith in Christ. So the faith of salvation is the faith that we live in each and every day. When we place our faith in Christ, we don't then take over our lives and we start living as hard as we can for Christ. No, we put our faith in Christ for salvation and then we put our faith in Christ every single day to get, ask him to give us the power, the understanding. Again, chapter one, I can't get into or, or first week anyways, I can't get into it. But as we're spending time in his word, as we're spending time worshiping with the church families, we're spending time uh, serving each other, as we're spending time sharing the gospel, as we do the thing God calls us to do, we do that in his strength and in faith in Christ. And he says to be steadfast. In other words, be firmly seated in a chair. Settled in mind and purpose. Not moved away. I could spend an entire week talking about not moving away from Christ. We're in Hebrews in men's Bible study. And the whole point of Hebrews is Jewish believers, don't move away. Don't drift away. Guys, listen. I can't get into it. This happens to members of churches doesn't just happen to a new believer who eventually goes, eh, I'm not really into it. I've seen this in churches. I've been in church all, literally all my life. And I've seen this happen with people who say they're Christians. And we look at them and say, man, they're mature believers. And wow, they're really empowered. They're like elders of churches and deacons and ministry. They're there every single week. And all of a sudden, they drift away. The cares of the world, the stresses of life. The things that seem just a little bit better than going to church all the time. Being a part of a church. and Work becomes more important. Money becomes more important. Fun becomes more important. Leisure becomes more important. And pretty soon, drifting, drifting, drifting. Were they ever saved? I don't know. That's up to them and God. 
But Paul is saying, listen, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you are not going to be moved away from that. You need to stay connected to him. Why? Because we have this hope, this certain expectation of heaven. Here we go back to this idea that we get to go to heaven one day. I've talked to several different people and just said, man, I just cannot wait till we get to heaven one day. Because this world is tough, it's hard, it hurts, it's painful. My, my sister-in-law's father passed away this week, way too young. Godly, wonderful, loving man. It's a huge part of my upbringing. I mean, thank the Lord that he is in heaven, but man, it hurts. But Christians, we stay in there with that. We hold on to the hope that we have. So as we close out, our usual takeaways. Again, I don't, I don't, I'm assuming all of us have placed our faith in Christ, but I don't know. Sometimes, you know, people come in with a different understanding of what salvation is and they hear what salvation is and, oh man, I need that. But do you believe Jesus is God and he died for you? And if you haven't made that decision, if you haven't said that, yes, God, I I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I ask you to forgive me my sins, man, it's just so simple. Simple, just give your, it just takes humility to just give your life to Christ. Say, God, forgive me my sins. Admit that, that you're a sinner. We all are. That you were estranged, that you were hostile in mind, that you were hostile in the way you lived life. But now you say, God, I want you to forgive me my sins and thank you for Jesus who is able to die for my sins. Please forgive me my sins. I'm trusting in Christ, in Christ alone. If, if you make that decision today, even right here, right now, just have that conversation in your heart to God's, I'd love to hear about it. Just grab a card, put your name on it, contact information if you want me to get a hold of you and just say on the back, I trusted in Christ today. It would be awesome to know that. And then last one is this. Christians, there's nothing deeper. Everybody wants something deeper. I've had people tell me, when I was a youth pastor, I had a person, I remember this, I don't know why it sticks in my head, but they came up to me and said, you know, Harold, I think we need to go deeper. You know, my eyes start watering. What? How much deeper? We're talking about the Greek. I'm talking about the Greek to middle schoolers, high schoolers. How can you go, how can you go deeper than that? We need to go deeper. We know people who want to go deeper, you know what they're looking for? They're looking for a feeling. I just want to feel God more. We've already talked about last week, how do we know God? That word know, epigenosis, personal, experiential, full, be filled and out. How do we know God? Well, you have to listen to last week's message, but I'll give you the four things. And if, if anybody ever wants to prove me wrong, I'm 100% up for it. There are four things that you and I, according to what I understand the Bible will be teaching, that we need to be doing. Not a bunch of whole realistic or religious type of things, or not a whole grabbing from other religions, not a bunch of feelings, which feelings will come. It's time with God and His Word. And prayer, that's just you talking to God. Why? Because it's all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's what we talked about last week. How do you gain that? From God's Word. And then it's being with God's family. This is where people start drifting. Things are more important than church. There's nothing more important. 
than us being together as believers in Jesus Christ, worshiping. We're His body. He's our head. He deserves our worship. Serving your church family. The Bible is clear that if you're not serving, you're sinning. 1 Peter 4.10, it's a command. And in that serving is spiritual growth because you have God working, God's empowering you. God's Holy Spirit has gifted you in sharing the gospel in your life with other people. Praying for those who need Christ and then beginning spiritual conversations with people. It's amazing how fast you'll grow when you do that because you'll be scared spitless. And then you'll take a step of faith and then you'll start talking and God will start using you. Then they'll ask questions and you'll be like, I don't know the answer. So you're going to go to the Bible and find the answer. You're going to come back to them and give them the answer. And you're going to grow like crazy. Because spiritual wisdom and understanding comes from here. Knowledge of God comes from here. And as we live it out in front of others. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. And again, so much stuff in this, these verses. Lord, I pray that we would grasp it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring it back to our minds during the week. That we'd spend time in this passage slowly just milking it for all it's worth. And that as your word says, that you will fill us with the knowledge of your will. That you will then allow us to live a life worthy of you. And in, that, in those steps of faith, that we would then gain the knowledge of God. We would know you intimately. Lord, help us not believe the lies that are out there about how we can know you. And we stay true to what you said to do. In Christ's name, amen.